good to be back together here uh, at uh, our building. Uh, for those of you uh, who are visiting this week, last week we were gathered together with other churches in the city, uh, Destiny and others uh, at the Usher Hall. It's great to be with and learn from other Christians who do things differently but have such faith and commitment to impacting the world uh, with God's kingdom. And it was, it was just good to be with them. Uh, but it's also great then to be back together as our family, worshipping God and hearing from his word and blessing one another. And so that's what hopefully we're going to spend the rest of our time doing today. We're starting our new uh, preaching series, our preaching series for the summer, which is called Not All Heroes Wear Capes. And um, uh, we're calling it that for two reasons. One, that's a thing uh, at the moment. Uh, but more importantly, um, because we want to look at some people who are listed in chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews in the Bible. And these people are often known as the heroes of faith. And uh, there are some famous people with some famous stories. But one of the key points that the writer wants to make about those people and wants to make about those stories is that they weren't superheroes with magic powers. Often when you read the Bible and you see people do amazing things, you think, wow, those people are amazing. And if you do that, you've completely missed the point. Because the point of those stories, the point of what's listed in Hebrews 11, is not to think, wow, those people are amazing. By implication, I probably couldn't do that. But wow, God is amazing. And if he could do that through them, well, maybe he could do things like that through me as well. The people we're going to look at over this summer series didn't find inner strength. That's usually what we're told to do. We live in a world that doesn't think uh, God or the supernatural exists. Certainly if you're from the West, uh, that's what most people think. So the only thing you've got is yourself. So find the strength that's in you. And if you find it, hopefully that will be enough to get you through. But that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that there is a great mighty, loving strength in the universe. It's God. He is a person and he comes to those and empowers those who put their trust in him. All of us, whether or not we're a Christian or not, are looking for strength to live. We know that we don't have it in ourselves, really. Sooner or later, you're going to realize that. If you're still trying to do it by your own strength, sooner or later, you're going to realize this just isn't working. The great news about Christianity is it's the truth about life. It says, there is strength for you, a free gift from God. And the people and the stories who are referenced in Hebrews 11 are meant to teach us this. And this morning, we're going to start with the first one who's listed, a guy called Abel. And to help set the context uh, for um, the whole series, we're going to start in Hebrews 10, because that comes before Hebrews 11, and that's going to bring us into uh, the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. So we're going to start from reading in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 32. Uh, we don't know who wrote the, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, it's, it's the only anonymous book in the New Testament. Uh, but we knew that they loved Jesus and they were writing to people who were going through difficult times. And so this is what they say to them in Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, meaning after you became a Christian, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, I'm not going to assume that all of us here are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. It's a pretty short one. Uh, But because I'm not sure that we'll all know it, I'm going to read it to you as well, because it's briefly uh, in Genesis chapter 4, right early on. The beginning of the Bible says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So this is the first story that the writer to uh, the Hebrews thinks of when he's thinking of the heroes of faith chronologically through the Bible. This immediately comes to his mind. It's a brief story. It's a bloody story. But there are things for us to learn in it. And I want us to look at three things this morning. And I think one of them or other of them may feel particularly appropriate uh, to you today. We're going to look at Abel's silence and his sacrifice and his suffering. Let's look at this silence, first of all. I think it's, it's interesting that the first hero of faith that the writer mentions said nothing that was worth recording in the Bible. You read through uh, Genesis 4 and you realize Abel doesn't say anything. We hear from God. We hear quite a lot from Cain. We don't actually hear anything from Abel. And this is unusual because Christianity is a very verbal religion. We believe that God spoke creation into being. It isn't just a metaphor. It's a, it's a way of understanding. It's, it's how God created all things. We believe that this Bible, all of its words to us, it's not just a coincidence that we have words as Christians, but that God has spoken to us. These are his words to us. One of Jesus' names is that he is the word of God. Preaching was a massive part of his ministry. He kept talking to people and saying things to them. 
And then he commissioned his followers to do the same. He said, tell everyone else what you've seen and what you've heard. And that is still a calling on Christians today. And when we gather, we do what we've done this morning, which is we follow the Bible's instructions to praise God and to encourage one another with words. We sing. We sometimes have uh, spiritual gifts. We share news. We preach. We talk. All of these usage of words are an essential part of Christianity. They're what God's called us to do. But I noticed Abel's silence as I was preparing for today, and I wanted to mention it. And the reason is I want you to know that if you are maybe serving quietly, you're giving secretly, you are being faithful in difficult things without making a big noise about it, you may not be heard by everyone. But I want to say as a leader, we see and hear these things. We see what you do. We hear what you're up to. And we're so grateful to God for you. It can be tricky sometimes, I think, when we have lots of words used and a stage from which we do many of those things to think that what happens here is really important, but what happens quietly or even silently elsewhere is less important. And Abel's silence tells us that's not the case. This is a man who lived a life of faith, who was commended by God, and we don't have a word from him. So I just want to say to you, God even if we don't see, if you think, oh, he's saying he sees, he doesn't know what's going on in my life. Well, God definitely does. He does see. He hears, even if no word comes from your lips. And he values it, and he loves you. Every deed that comes from faith, whatever the volume, pleases God. I want you to be encouraged by that. If you're just feeling discouraged, you're thinking, man, no one seems to know about this. What's going on? God says, no, I see. Now, though we don't have any of Abel's words, the author of Hebrews says that through his faith, he still speaks. So let's see how his sacrifice does that. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Well, how did that happen? How did faith make the difference? How did it make Abel's sacrifice better? It's really interesting. When you read lots of books about this kind of thing, they'll all talk about the difference between the two sacrifices. Say, oh, well, you see, Abel's sacrifice was animals. God loves that. And plants, he's less keen on that. There's <laughs> theological reasons for it. But I, I don't know, maybe just particularly carnivorous writers I've been reading recently. But I think there's more to it than that. I wonder how you'd feel if during our worship this morning, someone had brought a prophetic word that God hated what we were doing. It would have been an awkward moment. Uh, they, they, myself and Matthew, as elders here, would have probably been like, let's just kind of, okay, let's just, uh, let's, <laughs> probably what would have happened. But God sometimes does this. I'm not giving you license, but I'm saying, God, in Isaiah 1, this is exactly what God says to his people. He says, this is amazing, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. 
Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Psalm 51 tells us a similar thing. It says to God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's really interesting. David, who wrote Psalm 51 and Isaiah, they both lived at a time in which there was a sacrificial system in the, amongst the people of God, which God had established. So this can be slightly confusing. People say, well, you told us to sacrifice all these animals. You told us to make these sacrifices. And now you're saying you don't like these sacrifices. Why? What is going on? Well, what David and Isaiah both realized was that what mattered was not what was being sacrificed, but the heart of the person who was making the sacrifice. That was the key thing. Were they grieving for the things that they had done wrong? Were they eager to love God? Were they keen to bless others? This is what's going on in the difference between Cain, Cain's and Abel's sacrifices. The reason God preferred Abel's sacrifice to Cain's wasn't because of what he brought, but because of how he brought it. That's why the writer in Hebrew says, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. He doesn't say, by meat, Abel offered a better sacrifice. He doesn't say, by hard work, Abel offered a better sacrifice. He says, by faith. Cain could have sacrificed every animal on the face of the earth, and God would not have accepted it unless it was done with faith. This is why God says to Cain, he says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. He doesn't say, I only accept animals. <laughs> what are these crops you're giving me? They're he doesn't say that. He says, I want your trust. I don't want you bringing something saying, look what I've done. And I don't want you bringing something saying, maybe this will keep you happy for five minutes. I want your heart that says, God, thank you for all you've done for me. Here's my response. That's a sacrifice of faith. That is what... God is looking for. So does God have your heart? Are you deep down living for him? Is this what is motivating your life and what you do for him? Because this is the life of faith. A life that seeks to please him because we love him, because we trust him. Noisy displays of affection and obedience are of no interest to him if your heart is somewhere else. If your thoughts and emotions and efforts are really focused on something or someone else, if your actions are unloving or unjust or ungenerous, if your life can't be defined as believing God, then your sacrifices and good deeds are Worthless, which is a strong word. And you might think, well, now come on. <laughs> I've done some good things. I do try my best. I try my hardest. Maybe you're visiting us today. You're 
not a Christian, you thought, I thought Christians were about doing good things. I've been doing good things. Now he's saying my good things don't matter. Mm -hmm. Isaiah also tells us, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's what your good deeds are like before a perfect, holy God. He always does everything well. He always does everything right. He never does things out of wrong motivation. He always does things out of the overflow of his love. Compared to him and his perfection, even your very best efforts, which are mixed in their motives and mixed in their success, they just can't compare. It's not like, well, he's here and I'm here. It's we're on different planets. We're on different beings of existence. There is a chasm of perfection between you and God. Every human religion and every secular way of thinking will tell you how to do enough to be good. They will say, this is the way. This is what you should do. This is how your life should be. As we often like to say, if you don't think that's true, just tell people you don't recycle. Because people say, that's what you must do. That is how you must live. If you do these things... Every religion does that, and so-called non-religion does that. Everyone has these ways. These are the things you must do to be good. Christianity says you could never be good enough. You will never get there. It's like, it's like me using my stepladder to try to get to the moon. God is perfect in every way. How can this, what, what do we do then? Is there a sacrifice we can make that would, that would please God enough? No, there isn't. But here's the brilliant news. There is a sacrifice good enough for you to be reconciled to God. And God has made it for you. He has given his son so that if you put your trust in him, you will be made perfectly right in God's eyes. Hebrews 9:14 The blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is what had happened this is what happens to you when you become a Christian you put your faith in Jesus and it's his sacrifice that counts it's his sacrifice that brings you to God. Abel's sacrifice of an innocent animal points us to God's sacrifice of his innocent son. And Abel's faith speaks to us and says that if we believe in Jesus, put all our trust in him, we will be acceptable to him. If you're a Christian here today, I want to remind you of how it is or how it was that this happened for you. Not by talking about the, the theology of how we're all saved, but the story of how God got hold of you. Because maybe this is part of why Abel brought an animal sacrifice. It did happen that he was a shepherd, but he may have seen something else in it. He may have remembered what happened to his parents. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the, the, the shame of sin flooded their lives. And the moment it did, they realized that they were naked. And they went from being naked and unashamed to naked and very ashamed. And so they wanted to hide and they wanted to cover up. And basically, human beings have been trying to do the same thing ever since. But despite his anger and his grief at sin, God still cared for Adam and Eve. 
And we're told in Genesis 3 that he made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, whether this was a leather jacket or something less garish, we can't be sure. But God used animal skins to cover Adam and Eve and their shame and their sin. An innocent dies, the guilty live. And this pattern runs throughout the Bible until it all makes sense at the cross of Christ. Abel's story was that God had mercy on him via his parents. Yes, God expelled them from the garden, but he didn't leave them exposed. He covered them. He kept them safe by the death of innocence. And this meant Abel trusted in God and made his sacrifice with faith that there was a God who would care for him and protect him. Christians are encouraged to follow this same pattern. Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Doesn't that make sense of what we've already seen from the Old Testament? That God's always wanted our heart, and now that's most fully able to happen. Paul says, look back to what God's done, and then give a sacrifice of your whole life, not to persuade God, but because he has made you perfect. That's the way around it goes. Looking back reminds us of God's mercy. It stirs our faith to live a sacrificial life for him. So what is your story? How did this happen for you? I just want to take a moment to share a bit of my story. I'm aware that most of you will have met me as a church leader, and so it would seem you know, within certain parameters to be fairly normal to you that I'm a church leader. I am still amazed that I'm in church at all. I'm amazed. I was brought up going uh, to a Catholic church on a Sunday, so I had an awareness of God. There was a vague, there was a degree of Christianity in my, uh, my, my parents, how they brought me up. But I was moving into that typical teenage drift where the church isn't speaking, and to be honest, teenagers aren't listening. And thousands and thousands of young people have left the church and left the faith at that moment. And I have no doubt that I would have been amongst them. But around this time, I was moved to a new school. I didn't want to go to it, but my parents were like, that's the school you're going to. And so I went there and really struggled to make any friends. And so my mum arranged a meeting with my form tutor to say, look, we need, he needs some friends and he needs help, clearly. And my form tutor said, well, there's a couple of boys in the class. I don't think you've spoken to them yet. I think you get on well with them. Their names were John and Tom. And so the next day, I went and sat next to them. And we became friends really, really quickly. And over time, I realized that they were Christians. They would talk about going to church, talk about going to their Christian youth group. And one day, they said, do you want to come along to it? And I said, all right. And uh, so I, I came along, and it was a youth group at a church that's like King's. And I had never been to a church like King's. I'd never been to anything even approximating it. I found it totally weird. And, and I, <laughs> I, remember I went home and said, well, that's probably the end of that. Thank you very much. But they persevered with me. And I just want to say, if you're persevering with friends at the moment, please keep persevering with them. These guys kept being my friend. They didn't move on to a new project. They were my friends. And they kept caring for me. 
And if you're visiting us today and you've been like, what on earth is all of this? Hey, stick around. Ask questions. Because God is grabbing your attention today. He won't necessarily explain it all in a moment. But he's got hold of you today and he wants you to respond to that. So these guys persevere with me. And a, a year later, approximately, they say, hey, do you want to come along again? And for some reason, I said yes. And it was just different somehow. And over the coming months, I became part of the community. There, I responded to the gospel. I got baptized. And you think, wow, great. So in from then on in. You think, wow, it should have been. But it wasn't. Because despite all this, I lived a double life for years. I lived one way on a Sunday and a really different way the rest of the week. And we've seen today from God's word how he absolutely hates that. And I thought it was fine. But in his mercy, one summer, the summer before my final year at university, he grabbed hold of me. It's the way I always think about it. There's no other way to explain it. He grabbed hold of me. And through the love of some of my church friends, who I hadn't been spending very much time with at all, but they were there for me at the moment. And, they, and then through reading the Bible for myself, which I'd never really done, and then he spoke to me dramatically through that. I suddenly realized that he really was real, and I really did have to give my whole life to him. And he gripped hold of my heart, and I've never let go since. Now, there's much more that can be said about that story, just as your story could be summarized, but also you know it's the product of years and years. But there is more than enough mercy, just in what I've said, to be getting on with. There's more than enough mercy for when Paul to say, in view of God's mercy, me to say, yes, amen. And the same is true for you. What's your story? How has God shown you mercy? Maybe you haven't told yourself that story for a while. Maybe you've just been very aware of what's happening in the present. Maybe you're thinking about what's going to happen next. And, and the past like, yeah, 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 but this is what's really going on. And actually the Bible says, Do, don't forget that. Keep living in view of God's mercy. Maybe you need to remind yourself of it today. Who was that person? When was that moment? Where did you go? Isn't it funny how you can't really explain it? How suddenly one day it made sense. Suddenly one day you knew God was real. Suddenly one day, despite all your sin, all your mess, all your stupidity, God had mercy on you. If you haven't told yourself this for a while, if you're not feeling aware of it very much, it will make your times with God more formulaic. It will make your witnessing to others less frequent. It will make your attending church and serving a matter of obligation rather than joy. And it will make the sacrifices that God does call you to make less faith-fueled. Today's an opportunity for your faith to grow again, for God to stir it up again. Because when I review God's mercy in my life, I'm so thrilled that he has been merciful and I love him more and I'm amazed more. And then when it does come to needing to make sacrifices, not to please him, but because he's done all this for me, I'm, I'm there. I want to. This is what matters to God. Not the sacrifice that we're making, but the faith that we're making it with. It's a bit weird, isn't it, in a preach that I've entitled, chose the title myself, Able Sacrifice, and in the section, 
that is even then called Abel's sacrifice, I haven't really talked about what you should sacrifice. And I'm going to stay like that because I want you to get the point that it's not what you do. It is the heart with which you do it. It is by faith that Abel, Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice to God. Final thing, Abel's suffering. When Christians tell you that God has a good plan for your life, they don't usually mean persecution, suffering, and an early death. But that is what happened to Abel, and that is what is happening to many faithful men and women around the world today who follow Jesus. He didn't get married. He didn't have any kids. He didn't have a long and successful career. He wasn't involved in doing loads of amazing things. He makes a paragraph of the Bible. He was murdered by his brother before any of those things could happen. And the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand that this is normal Christianity. This is what it's usually like. Remember how they introduced the section to their readers? He said, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And he doesn't then say, but don't worry, those days are over. And from now on, it's all going to be good. He doesn't say that at all. He's like, that's what it's like. And Abel's suffering, I think that's one of the reasons he chooses Abel first. It's because Abel's suffering teaches all of us to expect something similar. Those of us who are brought up in nations with a Christian heritage tend to think of suffering as the exception rather than the norm. That just isn't how Jesus sees it. John 15, he says, if the world, and when he says the world, uh, he means the people and the systems who are opposed to God. He says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Whether it's ridicule, peer pressure, social or physical intimidation, the loss of uh, respect or jobs or life, whatever it may be, God's people will suffer whilst they live in a world that's opposed to God and they live for him. It will happen. So how should we respond? What does faith look like when we're suffering? Well, two things. Firstly, briefly, we can cry out to God for justice. Abel's blood is said to do that. In Genesis 4, God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's the only thing we hear Abel say. His blood speaks and says, this was not right. And it's right that we hear that and feel it and respond to it. Some of you are involved in working with situations where uh, injustice it's being done, and you're right to respond to it. But all of us are called to cry out against it. Dev and I give to Open Doors, which is a, a charity that works with persecuted Christians around the world and advocates for them as well. And so by our 
giving, we're crying out. They also produce a monthly prayer diary, which I've been using to pray uh, to God to bring justice. It's just short little things for each day. And so I've said, yes, Lord, there, would you bring your justice? Would you bring peace? Would you protect your people? Because it's not enough to say, well, suffering happens, therefore it's going to happen, oh well. No, no, it happens, but it shouldn't. So we cry out for justice and we play our part in trying to make sure that it doesn't happen. But what I'm going to focus on is what the writer to the Hebrews focuses on. And they encourage us to have joy and confidence while suffering. Which is what you knew I was going to say. You're like, of course, that's what happens when we suffer, isn't it? We're to have joy and confidence. Well, in case you think that's ridiculous, in case you think, well, he must have a really lovely life if he's, saying, if he's able to say that. Jesus says it. So it's not me saying it, it's Jesus. Luke 6, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Not on your account, on the account of the Son of Man. So you don't need to create this problem. Jesus will do it for you, yeah? Sometimes I feel like Christians create the problem. They say, it's persecution. You're like, no, it's you. But if you, <laughs> if you make it about Jesus then this is going to happen. Listen to what he says. Rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Some people who Jesus says that are shackled down to the ground because of him and cannot move because of him. And he says, leap for joy. Why? Is it, how is it possible to think this way? Because faith is believing in God and believing God. And faith believes God when he says that he will bring justice for all. There is an appointed day when every injustice will finally be dealt with. God will do it. And moreover, he has promised that he has an eternal paradise for those who trust in him, which is of far greater consolation than any loss we presently experience. It's not just like this will even it out. It's like this will explode the scales if you're trying to compare these two things. Now, of course, no one's going to like having their property plundered by rioting mobs, but faith sees moments like that as just another sign that this world is passing away and a better, more abiding one is coming, and it's there for those who put their trust in Jesus. That's what happens in the moment. That's how faith transforms our response to suffering. Abel's name means mist or vapor. It means here today, gone tomorrow, and that was his life. But that's the life of all of us eventually. This life is fragile. This life is brief for a Christian. That's fine. Most of us don't really live that way because you do have to get through the day. <laughs> but this is the truth of the matter. Our, our lives could go tomorrow. It's okay. People can destroy what was going to be lost at some point anyway. But they cannot take from a Christian what God has given to them forever. In Christianity, death is followed by resurrection. Weeping is always followed by rejoicing. Maybe that will be in the next life. But it will be for those who put their trust in Jesus. 
maybe maybe you're you're desperate about dying. Maybe the the idea of it, the the whole thing, just fills you with fear because you haven't got hold of this peace that Jesus offers. Ask Him for faith because it's faith that sees that sees death and that sees suffering as a sign of association with Jesus, not of God's abandoning us. Most people, when they suffer, most people, particularly when they suffer for Jesus, say, well, something must have gone wrong at this point. And the Bible says, no, just wait. More than wait. Look. Look with eyes of faith. Suffering becomes a way of gaining reward, not a punishment. And this is what faith does. I was in my room uh, this morning preparing, and the, the walls of our flat are thick, and the curtain was drawn, and so I really had no idea what the weather was like outside. And you're like, well, it was lovely and blue. Of course it was. You're like, well, I live in Scotland. There's no, of course it was about lovely blue skies. I had no, I, I didn't know. Drew the curtain back, blue. Yes. And, and this is what our life is like sometimes. And it, by faith, we draw the curtain back. By faith, we look out from the prison cell. From, by faith, we look up from the grave to the life, the light, the eternal joy and freedom that God gives to all those who put their trust in him. Faith sees it now, not with these eyes, but one day will do. Now we see things with our eyes of faith. The day will come when we will see Jesus face to face. When we believe this and shape our lives around this, we will be able to endure whatever it is that we're currently going through. Abel did this, and by God's grace, you can too. So we've looked at Abel's silence and his sacrifice and his suffering. I wonder which of those God was wanting to put on your heart today, speak to you about today. His brief story tells us that faith in Jesus doesn't have to be loud, but it does need to be sincere. It reminds us that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That's the only sacrifice we need. Our sacrifices don't add to that. It's not Jesus plus us. Everything we do, everything we give is a response, not a cause. An able story shows us that faith will cause us problems in this life, but will also bring us into eternity with Jesus. The last thing the Bible says about Abel is in Hebrews 12, 24. It says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel rightly cries out for justice. But if justice was rightly done to us, none of us could stand. But the blood of Jesus cries out mercy. And this is the word to all of us. God has paid the price for our sins. If you put your trust in him, your faith in him, Everything changes. Let's thank God for his mercy in our lives. Lord Jesus, we're going to spend this summer looking at these people. We're going to call them heroes of faith. But really, you're the hero. You're the one who does all this. And each one of us in our circumstances, whatever they're like, just say, would you please, please just touch me now. Help me to see by faith now. Those of us who are Christians who have been reminded of things this morning, oh God, help us to believe them. Right now, say, it was about the silence. 
It was about the sacrifice. It was about the suffering. Help me, God, have faith right now. Just whichever of those was, you can say, God, I'm asking you, help me to have faith for that. Maybe you're here, not yet a believer. That's the word. And God is speaking to you today saying, I want you to take that step of faith. I want you to start trusting in me. It means letting go of your old life, putting all your hope in me instead. If that's you, maybe have a word with me or somebody who's brought you here today afterwards. Lord, we thank you. You're a great God. We thank you that by faith we get hold of all your goodness. Bless us today, Lord. Amen.